Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As we begin the new year, we are considering the unique assignment that God has for us as a church. Now, God did not create us just to do a list of tasks for him. If he had made us for that purpose alone, he would have made us more durable, more easily directed, definitely without the need for sleep or the desire uh, for love or the need to be loved. Because all of those really decrease our productivity in tremendous ways. So why did God give us the desire for love and the need for sleep and the capacity to make our own way in life and dream about the future, whatever we want to dream? Well, God did this so that we might build a relationship with him, first of all, that we might learn to love him and then love each other and then work together to turn his dreams into reality. The problem that we talked about last week is we've all decided to go independent with our dreaming, to dream our own much smaller dreams, dreams that benefit primarily us, dreams that maybe fit just us. And over time, those independent dreams, many of them turn out kind of be nightmares or they turn out to be mirages that never quite deliver the joy and the refreshment that they promised from a distance. Now, even the few who are able to turn massive dreams into reality report that even, even those dreams and the fulfillment of those dreams are never quite enough for them. And that's because we were created for God dreams, not just me dreams. Here's the definition that we're using for a God dream in this message series. A God dream is a vision of the future that begins in the mind of God and is then given to us. Now, the church is the primary destination where God calls us to dream his dreams and then work together to see those dreams become reality. Now, when God gives us a vision of the future, it's presented inside of a frame. And the reason is because that dream has limits to it. And that's because while God may dream big, we are limited. And so God gives us a doable part of his overall vision of the future. And the frame that marks those doable parts, that assignment for us as a church, that frame, like all frames, has four sides to it. And the first side that we're going to consider this morning is our mission. Our mission. This is a short summary statement that identifies and reminds us what it is that God has asked us to do as a church. It answers the question, what? What are we doing? Now, we are very easily distracted as individuals. And so it's no mystery that when we come together, all of our collective distractions causes that distraction only to intensify. And so we need a sentence to remind us, this is what God has called us to do. So here's our sentence, thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. Every word in this sentence is packed with meaning and purpose. So I want to unpack this sentence this morning. And I'm going to explain this sentence in thought order, not in word order. I want you to think of this sentence kind of as a, well, as a pyramid. And we're going to consider the foundational part first and build on that foundation until we cover every word in this sentence. The foundation of this entire sentence are the last two words in this sentence, in Christ. So we're going to begin there, in Christ. Over Christmas, my wife's father took a turn for the worst. His health has been declining, but he spent Christmas in the hospital, and now he's in a skilled nursing, nursing facility. It looks like um, they say he probably will not recover. Now, it's been a very 
difficult time for us. And I know many of you have gone through this and you understand how challenging this is for a family. But we are not the only ones who are going through a challenging time. That nursing home is full of sadness. Down the hall, there is a man who yells, help, every five minutes. Now, the staff is great, very attentive, but there's nothing more that could be done for this man. But as if to serve as a reminder for all of us visiting and everyone living there, this is a place of tremendous challenge and sadness. He just calls out about every five minutes, help, and you hear his voice echo down the hall. Now, my wife's parents have been married for almost 60 years now. I've been married for 33, and I can't imagine life without my wife. And so for them, her mom, as she sees her husband in the last part of his life, she just can't bear the thought of life without him. In the bed next to my father-in-law is a man who lost his wife this past May. They had been married for 65 years. Over Christmas, apparently, his daughter told us that the sadness of facing the holiday season without his wife had overwhelmed him, and he just lost the will to live. He stopped eating. And so he is now in this facility, and his daughter brings him peanuts, which turns out to be the only thing that he'll eat at this point. And he's lost, she said, over just a couple of weeks, he's lost nine pounds. And we got talking to her one night as we were both leaving the nursing home, and my wife and her hugged, and then she looked at us, and tears were welling up her eyes, and she said these words. She said, Jesus, this is hard. And I thought, no truer words have been spoken. Now, I know she was using the name of Jesus as an explanation point, but unknowingly, she was exactly right. This life is hard, and not just in nursing homes. And Jesus is the only real hope that we have. Why is that? Why is Jesus the only hope? Well, 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So there is one God that says, and there's one mediator between us and him. What this is saying is that there's a problem between us and the God who created us. That's why there's a need for a mediator. Mediation implies a conflict that needs to be resolved. Now, the popular thought these days is that there isn't one God. There's many God ideas. And that means that God is not real. It's just a set of ideas that people over time have gravitated to and attached themselves to. And if God isn't real, if he's just a collection of divergent ideas, then of course there's no way you could mediate any conflict with that God. Mediation is impossible with a non-entity. Now I've been involved in one court-appointed mediation. And what if I responded to the court summons and asked them, well, which Bevan idea would you like to appear at the mediation? Well, courts don't like being messed with, and they would take this probably as an affront, and they would say, we want the real Bevan there, the one who lives at this address, the one whose name is Bevan James Unruh. Now, there can only be one of those. I mean, one normal name, two weird names. There's only one, <laughs> Bevan James Unruh. 
So I'm real, and, and therefore I can be a part of a mediation process. But if God is just an idea birthed in the minds of humans, then there is no real God to wrong, and therefore no need and no possibility of mediation. But our mission as a church is founded on the understanding that God is real. And while there may be many ideas about him, there is only one him. And there is a real problem between the real God and us that needs to be resolved, that requires mediation. And that problem is called sin. And it is our collective sin that makes life so hard and this world so full of pain. And sin is a problem that requires mediation. We can't fix this problem on our own because, well, we keep doing the problem. We keep sinning. It's kind of like trying to get out of debt while you keep accumulating more and more debt. Trying to fill in a hole while you keep digging the hole. We can't solve this problem. Only Jesus is able to pay for our sin and, as this verse says, ransom us from our debt and mediate the break between us and God. Now, how do we know this to be true? These are some pretty amazing statements. How would someone like me and any of us be able to say, this is really true? How do we know this? Well, the last part of this verse says how it has now been witnessed to. What this is saying is that this didn't just pop into the mind of someone who made it up or some ones who made it up. And then a bunch of gullible people, all the way down to us, 2,000 years later, are still buying into this myth. This is not how this idea came to be. The arrival of Jesus Christ to this verse is talking about occurred in history, in real space, in real time. And lots of people were there to witness it, to see it happen. And Jesus died on a cross at a specific place, and at a specific time, on a specific date. And thousands saw that occur. That was witnessed to. This isn't a story that someone made up. This is a piece of history. And then that Jesus rose from the dead on a particular Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. Hundreds witnessed that. In fact, there is more historical evidence surrounding the existence of Jesus Christ than many of the other figures of history of that time. So why is there so much disagreement about this figure of history and not so much about the other figures of history? Well, the big difference is that if what Jesus said and did really is true, if what the eyewitnesses corroborate and say they heard and say they saw, if that's really true, well, then that has serious implication on my life and on your life now, 2,000 years later. I mean, what Caesar Augustus said a contemporary of that time, and what he did has nothing to do with me now, has nothing to do with you now. Now, like Jesus, he claimed to be God, but he never did pull off that resurrection thing, proving that he really was God. So I can learn about Caesar, but I have to make a decision about Jesus. Because if what the witnesses say is really true, then I have to bow before this Jesus. Or I have to 
logically justify how it is I'm going to dismiss so much historical evidence on this one figure and none of the other figures of history. This is the foundation of our mission in Christ. Without this, if this isn't really true, then our faith and our mission is just silly talk. It's just religious sentiment. Honestly, it's, it's a waste of my time. It's time for me to go back into business, do something else. It's time for us to stop wasting our collective time and our collective money to help people understand this truth. But we are convinced this is true. The witnesses, so many of them, didn't lie. They saw this. And we believe them. Next is the focus of our mission, broken people. The reason we need Christ is because it turns out our break with God, this need for mediation, isn't just between God and us. It has implications far beyond just us and God. Our break with God has broken us and our world. I recently took a, an old friend who was visiting from out of town to uh, Ruby's on the end of the pier. And we sat down at a booth right there on the edge, and he looked around at the ocean, and then he looked at me and he said, You live here? This place is amazing. And I agree. It is. I mean, he, he lives in Detroit, so this place is really amazing. <laughs> I used to live in the suburbs of Detroit, and there's some pretty stuff there, but this place is amazing. And so when you look around, do things really appear that broken? Well, not from rubies on the end of the pier, they don't. Things appear perfect. But you know, if you just peel back the thin layer of the beauty of this place, of the nice weather that we usually get to experience, of all the money, of course, that it takes to live in a part, place like this, you will find people calling for help. Not audibly, but on the inside. Sometimes audibly, but definitely on the inside. They are, some of them asking for marriage help. <laughs> They're on the very edge of just ending a marriage. They can't figure out how to piece this together. They're asking for parenting help. Most parents who are observant about the culture and where things are going are scared to death about the future for their kids, and they're asking about parenting help. A lot of people are asking for addiction help. A lot of people are asking for mental help. And the world that my wife and I are now in, there's a lot of people in need of dying help. Then the list goes on. But the problem that is causing all of this pain goes too deep to be fixed by a little or even a lot of just help. That's because we're broken. We're in pieces. And our world is in pieces. Now, if we were just a little bent, well then, we could, with enough help, maybe straighten ourselves out and maybe straighten this world out. But when you're looking at a a thousand pieces of shattered glass? It's hopeless. We need more than just a little help. We need help from above to put the pieces back together in the way they were designed to be. You know, if you drop a glass a hundred times, it's going to break differently every time. 
And so no two people break exactly the same way. Depending on our wiring on the inside, depending on how broken our past was and the nature of that brokenness, depending on what we are experiencing now, we're all in different shaped pieces. We're all broken in different ways. But the experience of being broken and living in this broken world is something that we all share. Jesus looked out on the crowds 2,000 years ago of people in the city of Jerusalem, and he accurately described what it feels like to be broken in a broken world. This is his observation in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Let those two words sink in. They were harassed. The word means to be hounded by trouble. The idea is, you know, a hunting dog tracking you down has your scent and is going to eventually find you. In a broken world, trouble is going to eventually find you. It will track you down. Now, you might be able to string together a few good days or a few good weeks or a few good months maybe. But eventually, trouble will find you. Someone who is broken is going to mess with you in your world. A world that is broken is going to absolutely blindside you in your plans. And eventually, your own body is going to harass you if it isn't already. You know, that nursing home just a few blocks over this way is full of people who are being harassed by their own broken bodies as those bodies fail them. Now, it, it's hard. I, I'll just tell you, it's hard to watch. It's hard to go into that place because... Well, it's my future, too. I don't know if it's going to be exactly like that, but that's our future. And I often find myself as I walk down the halls and look at the people in those rooms, and I think, who were you? What did you do in your 20s? What was your career? Were you married? Did you have kids? What Did you ever imagine that this would be you? It's our future. But not only are we harassed, we are also helpless. You know, if we were just harassed, but we could figure our way around it, great. But we're harassed and helpless. What that means is we lack the ability to navigate, to guide our own lives through this broken world. Now, we live in a community full of very, very capable people. As I get to know more and more people over the years here at Seabreeze, I'm always usually pretty impressed at what some of you do for work. There's some pretty impressive people in this room. We're, we're very capable, a lot of us. But none of us can put the pieces together of our own broken lives. And we may be, be working on some solution for some problem here in this world, but the world just keeps falling apart. We certainly can't keep the broken people of this broken world from harassing us. We need a shepherd. We need someone to, to guide us. And the only one who can do this is the one who is both Savior, Reconciler, and Lord, Guide. And that is Jesus Christ. Now, what he does is not just guide. He transforms us. And that's the next word, transformation. Transformation. 
It's described in 2 Corinthians 5.17 this way. Therefore, if anyone is, and there's that phrase, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This is important to understand. This is not saying that if anyone is in Christ, he's, he's a better person, he's a nicer person, he's a happier person. Hopefully these things happen. But Jesus isn't just a, an enhancement in life. He's not just a way to kind of upgrade and maybe level up some. No, he, he intends to transform us into something new. He takes the broken pieces of our broken past and puts them together into something new. And what's amazing to me is as we keep breaking things, he keeps piecing things together. You see, our brokenness starts out as a vertical problem. And then it shows up in the horizontal world. What I'm saying is, it first and foremost is a break with God. And that's a break that we can't see. We can feel it, but we don't always know what that comes from. It's a break in the horizontal or the vertical plane that we can't see. But the effects of that vertical break has sent shattering shockwaves down through us and into our world in ways that we can see. What that means is that we can never fully solve all of the problems, or really many of the problems in this world through horizontal solutions through solutions that we can see, because at its core, it's an invisible vertical problem. That's where the break began, and that's where the transformation must begin. So Jesus came to address our vertical problem with God and then begin to transform us from the inside, the invisible, to the outside, the visible. I don't know if you've had a chance to ever visit a, an ancient city, you know, 2,000 plus years old that's in ruins. Pretty much every ancient city that isn't still lived in is in ruins. And the reason they are called ruins is because the cities are crumbled. They're in pieces. The columns are broken. The roofs are in pieces. The statues, for the most part, have fallen over and are laying all over in pieces. But the most amazing part to me of ancient ruins are the mosaics. It's the one part of the city that has remained intact. Here's a picture of an example of an ancient ruin. I mean, even those walls there, that they have been now put together by people. That's not the way the city looked like when it found it. But this mosaic, this is the way it looked. There was dirt on it. It had to be cleaned off. But once the dirt was cleaned off, this is the way it looked. Why is this the only remaining piece of art or architecture in the entire city that's this old? Well, it's because a city began as a completed city, and over the centuries and millennia, it has decayed into pieces. But a mosaic starts the opposite direction. It starts as pieces. And then an artist takes this piece and puts it here, and that piece and puts it there, and this piece, and they, they put it in the mortar, and they design a beautiful painting. And I think this is a great image of what God does with our lives. The world is in pieces. But what Jesus offers to do is, let me, let me take this piece, and if you'll trust me and if you'll act, we'll put this piece here, and then we'll put this piece there, 
And you can't see the entire thing. You can't see the whole scheme I'm doing. But if you'll just walk with me piece by piece and allow me over time to guide you, to shepherd you, I can make a mosaic out of your life. And long after all of the things that amaze us now in this world are just in ruins, it's the mosaics that are going to last. It's the people whose lives Jesus has pieced together. They're going to stand not only the test of time, but the test of eternity. So we are a part of seeing Jesus not just help people. He does that. But transform people. Put pieces into works of art that none of us could have ever done. And that brings us to the next two words, and that is to experience. This transformation occurs not as we learn the words, pick up the ideas about Jesus, but as we experience what he says. And that means we actually do what he says. We experience his words as true. Not just we think they're true and we nod our head and say, that sounds right, but we build on that. We do that. We experience that. Jesus described it this way in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The Bible is, is not a book of spiritual words for spiritual problems. No, it's a real book containing God's building instructions that are necessary to build a real life in the real world that can weather the real storms of this broken world. Now, if you don't think the storms are coming, I've got a nursing home for you to visit. Just spend five, just walk down the halls for five minutes. We cannot prepare for the storms of life by just doubling our resolve for when the storms hit, we're really going to stand firm. Or by just hoping for the best. Maybe, maybe the storms are, are not coming. Maybe, maybe they'll avoid me. That's not a plan for preparing for the storms. As my wife and I are in this world now, we find ourselves walking away and often saying, you know, if we're ever in this situation, we've got to remember what this is like. We've got to take notes. We've got to remember how hard it is for everyone around us. And we've got to remember to respond this way and not this way. And to do this and not that. And then it occurred to us this last week, this is not a test that you can take notes on and prepare for. If we're in that similar situation, we're not going to be able to take a list of things that we're learning now on a piece of paper and pull them out and say, oh, right, I'm going to be this kind of person. I'm going to respond to the pressure of dying this way. I'm going to treat people this way. That's not the way the tests of life are. You can't cram for them. You can't study intellectual for, intellectually for them. You prepare for them by building the kind of life that can handle them. And that takes time. Moving from a sand to a rock foundation is just plain work. And transformation is not a passive process whereby Jesus, Jesus just kind of magically transports us from the sand to the rock. Now, the transforming work of Jesus 
that puts us on a new foundation occurs as we move forward in this life and take his step of guidance step by step. You know, it's like any building project, really. You know, it doesn't just materialize. You check the plans today, and then you build something today from those plans. And then you do it all over again tomorrow. You check the plans tomorrow, and then you build something tomorrow from those plans. And if you build wrong, then you tear that down, and you rebuild according to the plans. And we do all this in the middle of a broken world full of broken people. Jesus doesn't give us a hassle-free construction zone as we move from sand to rock. He doesn't build for us. Transformation in Christ is a daily experience, not an event. And so what that means is, well, for me and for you, today, we are making the decision, what are we going to build on? If I am not willing to trust in the words of Jesus today, then I'm not preparing for that test maybe 20, 25 years from now. And as I've seen people struggle with the dying test, I'm becoming more and more convinced that dying for many people is the last and greatest of all tests. And it is the final test, the final test that we're all preparing for we're not preparing for. And I can't wait until I'm 80 and in that nursing home to suddenly become a person who really trusts in Jesus Christ. No, I, I, I get to make that decision today. And if I don't make that decision right today, well, thankfully, they'll probably be tomorrow. But I got to take this serious. We got we to take this serious. Life, life is a challenge. The storms are coming. And the storms just seem to be growing in intensity from what I can tell. And I believe it's because God is preparing us for that final storm. So let me ask you, how many people that you know know what I've just said? How many of your friends, how many of your neighbors, how many of the people you work with know this? I'm not saying know about Jesus Christ. I, I would think most everyone that you know know who Jesus is. At least they know he's a person of history. But how many people know this about him? Almost everyone agrees there's something wrong with this world. How many people know what is wrong? And what the evidence is for Jesus and what he really offers? How many people really know that? Well, if the people you know are like the people I know, it's not very many. It's a, it's a small minority. Really know this. So how are our neighbors and coworkers and friends ever going to hear about this so that they can honestly decide, you know what? No. Or you know what? Yes. How are they ever going to know? Well, this brings us to our next word, and that is inviting. We get to invite them to consider this. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, follows the new creation of Christ verse with these words. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and now gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
So it begins, all of this is from God. All of what? Well, what it just talked about. All of this new creation, transformation process that we mentioned in the verse before, that's from God. God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. That is his mission. That's what he's doing. That's what he's invited us to be a part of. And the critical part, he has committed to us. The message part. Now, we definitely couldn't do the reconciling part because we're the uh, offending party. But the message part, that's been given to us. And what that means is that if we don't open our mouths, people are not going to hear about this. That's amazing to me. With all that's at stake, why would God commit this critical part to such scaredy cats as us? I mean, I, I can see giving us a minor supporting role in the message job, but all of it? The reason, I think, is because the message is as much about the experience as it is about the content. You see, if you're considering a building project and you're looking for an architect, you don't want to just read the plans that they've submitted on different projects. You want to see with your eyes the portfolio. You want to see what they've built, not just read their plans. So the message of Jesus is best delivered in a relationship where the person being invited to consider Christ can not only hear but also see the message. So as we love people, as we invite them into our lives and as we take an interest in their lives, and as they see us face the storms of our life, they get a chance to experience the message, not just hear it. Now let me be clear, none of us build perfectly. We are not presenting ourselves as the model home. But what happens is if we really are, over time, day by day by day, building on the foundation of what Jesus said, over time that becomes apparent. Over time people see the foundation, or at least are curious about it. And that brings us to the final word, thoughtfully. Because no two people break alike, the invitation is best given if it's thoughtfully given. 2 Corinthians 5.16, the verse that precedes the transformation in Christ verse, says this. And I'll tell you, this, this verse continues to challenge me. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. What's a worldly point of view? That's the way things appear from the vantage of this world, what we can see with our eyes. But of course, there's much more going on in this world than meets the eye. And when it comes to people, there's definitely much more going on than meets the eye. I mean, we can see people, but we can't see really what's true of them and what's going on in their heart. So what do we do? Well, we form conclusions based on what we can see and what we can hear. And then we respond to people accordingly. We regard them from a worldly point of view. What this is saying, the Apostle Paul is saying this, he said, this is what happened to me, and this is what's going to happen to you, is when I decided that there was more to Jesus than meets the eye, I began to see that there's more to people than meets the eye. Those two things are linked together. We begin to do with other people what we did with Jesus. 
If you're a follower of Christ, then at some point you decided to look more deeply into who this person is. You started to at least wonder about what was really true of Jesus. And now Jesus says, I want you to do the same with the people I put in your life, in your path. Look beyond what you can see. Look beyond what you can hear. Shift from just reacting to the people who crossed your path and start really thinking about them, wondering about them, praying about them. Shift the people in your life from being just someone that you like or you don't like or someone who's in your way or helping you. Shift and think about them, Jesus said, the way I think about them, harassed and helpless just like you are. Someone who needs the shepherd that you know. And it's, I believe, as we think thoughtfully, think about other people in this way, we will develop a compassion for them. And then we are going to be given opportunities from God to invite them. You know, our world is always obsessing about something. I mean, every week the news cycle is just basically, this is what we're all going to freak out about this week. So everybody, just know this is the theme of the week. And usually it's not just made up. Sometimes there's some fabrication to it. But usually it's about some part of this world that really is broken. And some event has just drawn our collective attention to what's broken in this world. And so it's all about something that's broken and needs to be fixed. But all of the fixes that are proposed are still fixes on the sand. And therefore, those fixes, they cannot protect us from the storms of life. Only lives built on the rock can. And so while our world keeps... I don't know any other way to say it other than playing in the sandbox. We've been a mission, a mission from God. And this is it, thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. Now that's a God dream. And that's a dream that will impact all of eternity. Long after everything around us is just in pieces. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. By rights, we should just be a pile of brokenness. But all of us who have decided to follow you as our shepherd, we are far from perfect, but we've seen you put things together that amaze us. We've seen you begin to heal what looked impossible. And as we look out on our community, as beautiful as it is, as affluent as it is, but as particularly we look out on the people that you've put in our path, we see the brokenness. We see the loneliness. We see the marriages that are struggling. We see the parents that are struggling. We see people who are turning to the smallest of all dreams in a bottle or a chemical. And we see places where people are dying. And we are reminded of the truth that we are broken and this world is broken. And Jesus, you are the only one to reconcile and to transform. I pray that you would give us your eyes to thoughtfully consider the people around us 
thoughtfully pray for them and then to thoughtfully invite them to follow the shepherd that we follow. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.